MSW Media. This week, the Senate Judiciary Committee held hearings to consider the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to replace Justice Anthony Kennedy on the United States Supreme Court. The hearings were intense and dramatic as Democrats accused Kavanaugh of lying under oath and knowingly using stolen documents when he worked for President George W. Bush. Will Kavanaugh be confirmed? And what would his confirmation mean for the Supreme Court? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor and a CNN legal analyst, and I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a comedian and WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. Thank you for having me. And uh, I just have to say, Renato, this it just seems like it's a done deal. It was one of the, I watched some of the hearings and it felt like, does this even matter at all? I, I felt that way from the minute he was announced uh, as the nominee. I have to say Kavanaugh is the sort of person that you nominate if you're a Republican only if you're sure you got the votes. He's got a long paper trail. He's not a mystery uh, person who we're trying to figure out what his views are. Uh, and so I don't think Trump would have nominated him if they didn't have the votes sewn up. So you're saying better now than after the elections and the unknown after November. Yeah, I think this is the um, Republicans trying to hit a home run here for themselves. You know, they have sacrificed a lot uh, in terms of, uh, frankly, their own uh, views on a number of issues in order to to push forward the Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. And they've done that, I think, largely for things like this. You know, they have enabled Trump to uh, do a lot of things that conservatives don't agree with, like tariffs and so on, just so they can move the court uh, in a direction that is very much to the right for the next uh, 20 or 30 years. Now, I know that people who follow you, who watch you on CNN and are you know, paying close attention to what you write on Twitter, are invested and want to know what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. But I get the feeling that there are people who just don't understand how much the Supreme Court impacts their lives. I, I think that's right. Um, people think, you know, they, they're vaguely aware that stuff is happening in Washington. I don't think that they're keyed in on what is you know happening in Congress versus the Supreme Court. Uh, but I think um, certainly the people who are very informed that are following me on Twitter or, or watching CNN all the time, they, they, they know that the Supreme Court um, affects everything from campaign finance law to obviously reproductive rights and abortion uh, to uh, gun laws and what gun laws are um, are uh, allowed. In fact, here in Chicago, our gun handgun ban, for example, was struck down by the United States Supreme Court. Um, uh, that you know that is uh, you know had a very match, massive effect on on things here in Chicago. So there's no question that on so many issues the Supreme Court is very important and the stakes are very high. They are, and that's the thing with elections that this is one of the issues that I, I, I wish people would go. Okay, if I choose this person down the road, what's that going to mean in my life as far as decisions the Supreme Court makes? Because there are women who don't think that anything is going to change with Roe v. Wade or their reproductive rights. But when you see Kavanaugh testify and say he believes or his understanding is that contraception is the same is a form of abortion, that's going to make people pay attention. At least I hope it would. Well, I do think that um, 
with some of these things like reproductive rights, there is a bit of complacency because Roe versus Wade was decided before I was born, and I am not that young. But uh, I think you know there are generations of of women who have uh, you know grown up and and lived their lives uh, knowing that that is the law and not knowing what the alternative is. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, uh, assuming that Kavanaugh is confirmed, and I agree with you, I think it is pretty much a done deal, that, uh, you know, what will Roe versus Wade be struck, struck down? I think the there's a lot of conservatives who believe that that was uh, poorly decided and is, is essentially was invented by the Supreme Court. So I could see that happening. It's also possible that they'll just gut uh, reproductive rights uh, and re- essentially roll back Roe versus Wade while keeping it technically um, in place. Uh, either one could could have very significant impact for women across this country. And I wonder whether we will see any backlash at the voting booth. I wonder, too. And I and I know that the state of Illinois has uh, propped up, made sure that in the event that something happens at the Supreme Court level, they've uh, passed HB 40, which means that if it ever becomes illegal by the Supreme Court nationally, then Illinois will continue to support the right to have uh, reproductive rights. Well, that's right. And that it, essentially one thing that folks should know is that if Roe does get stricken down, it then goes back to the states. And what it'll mean is women who live in states like Texas and Utah and Oklahoma, where they already have a lot of trouble getting access to um, uh, reproductive services, because, for example, you know, in some of these states, there's only one place where they can um, get an abortion in the entire state, um, we'll have even more trouble because, um, you know, the, the abortion could be outlawed in those states. Um, so let's, you know, one thing I do want to talk about is why it is that the Supreme Court's important. One thing I don't think people realize is that not all judges are equal, and it's more than just a level thing. So a trial judge, that's a federal judge that oversees a trial like the Manafort trial, is doing something fundamentally different than the Supreme Court justices. What, you know, by the time a case, a, a judge in a um, a trial often is acting like an umpire. You know, there's this analogy that John Roberts used that I, people have been talking about a lot with the Supreme Court that you know you're just calling balls and strikes. Um, that isn't always true even for a trial judge. There's often very difficult judgment calls. But a lot of times there is a balls and strikes element to that where they're hearing evidence and they'll say overruled or sustained for an objection because it's a fairly obvious point of law. But by the time something gets up to the Supreme Court, it's because courts around the country are disagreeing about an issue and they're interpreting often very difficult to understand phrases like, you know, reasonable search and seizure, things like that. And the and the idea that uh, it would just be balls and strikes is is hard to imagine because you you can hear even in the testimony that that uh, Kavanaugh was getting was you know giving when he would say well I'm not going to answer that because it's hypothetical or his his interpretation of uh, of the the fact that um, semi-automatic guns should be uh, common use understood as common use based solely on the fact that there are so many of them did you see that part. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that I, was a prior ruling. Dropping. That what? was a prior ruling. You know, he had he he struck down an assault weapon ban in, uh, I believe, in D.C. Um, or he, or he would have done so. That was the way he ruled in a case uh, in his current capacity as a judge in the Court of Appeals. There, I think there's no question that he's going to have a very significant impact on 
uh, gun regulation in the Supreme Court. And that is very much an adder, a matter of judgment as to what the right to bear arms means right. and, and its extent. So that's exactly what I'm talking about. Crazy. Um, well, let's go from, you know, all to me, the, the, the debate over Kavanaugh should be more about those issues, like we talked about, whether it's reproductive rights or gun regulation. But what a lot of ha- uh, the focus has been, and I think because the Republicans have the votes on those issues, I don't think anyone believes uh, that Susan Collins really cares about hangers, uh, yeah, three thousand hangers sent or, to her office, or whatever. Yeah, uh, I, it's it's been on some of the more I'll call gotcha elements of the hearings, and I, I let's. I want to start by talking about I, whether you want to call it memo gate or, or whatever <laughs> this this what, this uh, this episode that happened many years ago, where Republican a Republican staffer in in the United States Senate who's working for the Republicans took confidential materials that were prepared by the Democrats that were on a server, and uh, supposedly the Democrats did not uh, pro- did not adequately protect their uh, documents from this staff. I just don't get how that is a defense that, well, they didn't, they didn't uh, protect it well enough. So it was there for the taking. Obviously they didn't care enough about it. It's like the guy who eats your uh, lunch out of the uh, fridge at work and says, well, you didn't have your name on it. And it's like, well, you know, you knew it wasn't your lunch, man. You didn't put that together. It right? seems a little more significant. Yeah. yeah. The, so it's more significant. And also, well, the, the, I'm sure the Republicans would argue you didn't use up the lunch uh, in this case, but yeah. <laughs> it goes to character though, too. I think Which is unsettling for sure. Now, obviously, you know, Kavanaugh's not the guy, not that staffer, just to make that crystal clear here. But he did but he knew that it wasn't his to use. Well, he, you know, he received these documents and memos. I think his view on it is is that he didn't know that these were stolen or t- or taken in a nefarious way. Um, there's also an email that was sent to Kavanaugh that t- was called spying, and apparently th- that was the subject line of the email, and it was about how there's a mole in the Democrats' um, uh, you know, side that was giving them information. I, I mean, w- the takeaway that I got from it was a takeaway that I had al- always had about Brett Kavanaugh, um, which is that he's a, a kind of a Republican operative guy, mm-hmm. um, and that's clearly who he is. But he's also a guy who's willing to do what it takes to make his team win, so to speak. By all means. Yeah. By all means. Um, very, you know, very um, dubious stuff. I think, you know, definitely the sort of thing that if you're not so, if you're somebody who thinks that that's not the way somebody who's a judge should behave, I think is concerning. But I I don't it doesn't seem like it's moving the needles. Instead, what the focus has been lately is on what I will um, what I what I will uh, what I will say, call or characterize as perjury only because all the questions when we when I put this on Twitter and I said, what are the what questions do you have for us in this episode? Almost everybody was using that word and talking about how Brett Kavanaugh lied under oath. That's the question. And and to be fair, it's charged that's been made by uh, Senator Feinstein, Senator Leahy and others. So w- what does that mean? Did he lie under oath? I think we should talk a little bit about about what that means. Um, and I guess what I would as a starting point, because this has come up with in other contexts, a lot of people ask me this question related to Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Um, when you, it, I've been on the other side trying to prove that people lied under oath. And one thing I would say is, first of all, you always want to have a statement that is very clearly contradicted by some hard piece of evidence or by another statement. So I, I filed my tax return and then, you know, they didn't file it. Right. So that's a clear cut. Example of lying. 
Correct. Perjury. And then you would you need to show that it was knowing or that you that the person did it purposefully so that they can't say, oh, I forgot, you know, I that that tax return was from 30 years ago. Something something that's very clear that they that that something that shows that they remembered. Now here, the I think here the, the this issue that came up because there was a uh, a judicial nominee, uh, Judge Pryor, who um, Brett Kavanaugh had been involved in the, in the he worked for George W. Bush in the Bush White House in getting involved in judicial nominations and approving judges. And he had said when he was up for the prior judgeship that he's in now, he testified before uh, the Senate and said that he did not work on that judge's nomination. Uh, now we have documents that showed that he did in some capacity. He was asked about that again in this hearing. And essentially, you know, th- there was charges on some side that this was a clear lie. I've, I've seen some other commentators say, no, he didn't lie at all. Take a look at it in context. Essentially, this wasn't on his portfolio. The, the point they're trying to make is that, you know, even though he was one of the staff members who worked on judicial appointments, this judge wasn't in his area of the country. Okay. But, you know, what, my, what I would say my takeaway is when I look, when I read all of the, the when I read the testimony is I, I think both sides are have that a little wrong. I think Kavanaugh was clearly trying to what I'll call minimize his role in working on that judge's uh, appointment because that I believe that judge um, had something the, the the memos that were leaked it, it had to do in part with that judge and that judge's nomination. But it, it, there wasn't this clear, uh, like I said a moment ago, gotcha, where you had a statement that he said, like, I never met with this judicial nominee. I never had anything to do. He never said anything definitive. Right. And there's this wiggle room that that's why I think we're seeing the disagreement that there is. And, that, and that's what a lot of the, your followers on Twitter want to know, obviously, about the perjury. And also they want to know, uh, is there a way to, you know, when, if anything happens— uh, to Trump, if anything happens in the investigations, the, someone I, I know that the, at the real Charles E wants to know: Can his appointment be reversed if Trump is found guilty of crimes? Which it would take a it's a long road to even get get to that point. Right. So you know, we, uh, one thing that I think we've discussed briefly is how difficult it is to impeach the president in the United States. Um, you know, it is just as difficult to get rid of a Supreme Court justice. I you, figured. Yeah. <laughs> These are lifetime appointments. They can only be removed by impeachment. Obvi- unlike a president, there it's it's pretty clear that a judge can be indicted. Uh, but, um, you know, the, you know, the impeachment would be the mechanism for removal, even if a judge is indicted. One one more aggressive thing that I have heard lately from Democrats, from some Democrats, has been this idea of I'll call packing the court mm-hmm. uh, using that term, because that's how it was described many decades ago during the FDR Roosevelt administration when this was previously discussed the idea being that democrats when they get the white house will appoint two more supreme court justices to bring the total to 11 because the total number of justices is not fixed in the constitution at nine that's just a convention we have um that is definitely very controversial it didn't work out well for president roosevelt uh but uh, the argument would be that it's an aggressive tactic uh, that's necessary because of what happened with the merrick garland situation for example yeah well i could see that they would basically revenge they would want to be able to have, to, you know, take their six pounds of flesh. Is it six pounds of flesh? How much flesh are they trying to take? Pound, uh, I think it's pound. One a pound, pound. A pound of but flesh. But I think with uh, by the time we get there, since it might be more than two uh, Supreme Court justices, they're going to well, <laughs> add some more weight to that. For sure. One thing that definitely happened here, and we can talk about that more with our guest, 
um, is that there, there was the sense that the Republicans are trying to ram this one through. Mm -hmm. So with Merrick Garland, you know, he was nominated 10, I think 10 months before uh, President Obama left office. He was never brought for consideration. Here we have Kennedy stepping aside and then the Republicans rushing to get it through. There was this issue of whether or not all the records were released. And there were many records that have not been examined by the Senate. And frankly, uh, the Republicans are doing whatever they can to just get this done before the midterms. And do they, I mean, I guess there's no consideration of uh, should the tables turn, what's going to happen then? But if the tables turn at all. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so now let's bring in someone who knows a lot about the Supreme Court, Neil Katyal, who is the former acting solicitor general uh, in the Obama administration, uh, which means that at that time he was the head person who was deciding what arguments were made before the United States Supreme Court on behalf of the federal government. Uh, and and he, he has argued many cases before the Supreme Court, not only in his capacity as acting solicitor general and before that as deputy solicitor general, but also he in private practice, he litigated, for example, he was the guy who represented the state governments like Hawaii in challenging the travel ban. Uh, oh, I was the, not aware he was on that. Yeah, he Incredible. is. He argued that case. So very, very accomplished Supreme Court lawyer. Uh, and he has also been uh, covering a lot of the Kavanaugh hearings for MSNBC. So somebody who's going to have uh, pretty strong views on this topic. Uh, and let's get him on the phone now. <phone rings> Welcome to the show, Neil. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks. It's great to be here with you, Renata. One thing I think it would be useful to give everyone context on is that the the confirmation process for Supreme Court justices has changed a lot in our lifetime. Uh, you know, Justice Scalia was unanimously confirmed to the Supreme Court back in the 1980s. Uh, but since that time, we have seen, starting, I think, particularly with the nomination of Robert Bork, very highly contentious Supreme Court nominations processes. And I'm curious uh, for your view as to why that has changed and how. Great. Well, I think the first thing to note is that really the confirmation hearing process has changed, not just in our lifetimes, but before that. I mean, I think most of your listeners would be surprised to know that we've only actually had Supreme Court confirmation hearings for a century. The very first one was in 1916. Um, and before that, the Senate just simply held a vote and each senator voted yay or nay, no hearing or anything. But because Woodrow Wilson nominated Louis Brandeis to the court and there was frankly a lot of anti-Semitism, that was the first hearing. Now, Brandeis didn't even attend the hearing, but there were others who spoke for and against his nomination. And then in 1925, you had the first nominee, Harlan Fisk Stone, uh, who attended his confirmation hearing and actually answered some questions. Um, and then really the modern practice of kind of confirmation hearings and grilling of a nominee begins with John Marshall Harlan, who has the distinction, I think, of being the most aptly named Supreme Court justice in <laughs> history with Harlan and John Marshall and everything else. And I think it's important to note that the court had decided Brown versus Board of Education just the year before. And so the court becomes increasingly, increasingly important in American politics, and therefore you have Senate hearings. And really, in 1981, you have the first televised hearing. That's, of course, Justice O'Connor, the first woman on the court. Um, and so all of that, I think, is the predicate to absolute the lead up to your question, which is the Bork hearings change everything. 
Um, Bork was brilliant, no question about it, um, but not necessarily so brilliant in his hearings. Um, <laughs> he actually answered all of the questions, which is obviously a sin, it seems, um, <laughs> and got himself in trouble and didn't come off too well. Um, you know, and, you know, there's a wide-ranging debate about whether he was treated fairly or not or whatever. But I think the modern confirmation process post-Bork does look different in that there is a lot of questioning about the nominee and a lot of evasion on the part of the nominee. And then you talked about the votes, and absolutely, the confirmation votes have really changed over time. You know, Justice Scalia was confirmed 98 to 0, as you say, Justice Ginsburg very close to that, but recent ones are not nearly as close. Justice Kagan got 63 votes, uh, obviously out of 100. Justice Sotomayor got 68. Uh, Justice Gorsuch got in uh, the, I think it was 54 uh, votes. Um, and so we've really seen something different. And now as the as the Judge Kavanaugh vote heads toward a Senate vote, we're facing the prospect that he might only have 51 votes or something like that, which would be pretty astounding. I mean, it always took 60 votes in uh, because of the filibuster. And it'd be a pretty unusual thing to have a nominee, particularly for this seat. And, you know, I hope we'll talk about that in a moment, about how important this particular seat is, but to have someone confirmed by such a razor-thin majority. Well, for sure. And as you mentioned, uh, you know, until until Gorsuch was the first nominee who got in with less than 60 votes, which is what a filibuster proof majority would be. Uh, that was partly the uh, uh, the Democrats had done away with the filibuster for non-Supreme Court federal judge appointments. And then the Republicans, in turn, um, got a, got rid of that rule uh, for the Supreme Court. And that was, of course, after the Merrick Garland uh, situation, which we I discussed a little earlier in the podcast and as sort of a prelude to all of this, uh, Gorsuch being the uh, nominee who um, who replaced um, uh, uh, Scalia and and we had kind of the stand-in for what would have been Justice Garland's seat, Judge Judge Garland's seat uh, would be Justice Garland's seat. What what one thing that's different, of course, there is Scalia, somebody's on the far right, replacing somebody on the right with another judge who is very conservative is very different than, as you're pointing out, Neil, replacing Justice Kennedy, who was in many ways the swing vote on the current court. Uh, that this will have a profound change in the makeup and the tenor of the court. Would you would you agree with that? I couldn't agree more. That is, you know, I think when you look at it statistically or look at it in terms of the qualitative importance of the cases, there's no doubt that Justice Kennedy performed a kind of so-called swing vote uh, function. You know, I got to argue 37 cases before him, and every single time, it didn't matter whether I was representing the government or representing accused terrorists or a corporation or whatever, you always knew he was coming in with an open mind, wanted to listen to the arguments, asked really hard questions. I think someone once labeled him the agonizer as a justice, and I thought that was apt. Um, and statistically, you know, there's a study done by Lee Epstein, uh, a famous empiricist um, at, at Washington University, and she found that Justice Kennedy sided with the, you know, the so-called left of the court before justices appointed by Democratic presidents 51 times. And that includes really important things. That includes abortion. That includes race and affirmative action, environmental regulations and greenhouse gases, you know, Guantanamo and terrorism, death penalty cases. 
same-sex marriage. In all of these, he cast the deciding vote. And so I think it's fair to say that this confirmation hearing is unlike any in our lifetimes. It's, um, it's one in which the stakes are unbelievably astronomical. Um, and that's why I think, you know, you're getting so much uh, heat about this nom- you know, on both sides about the nomination. Well, and, and may I, if I might, the, Renato and I were talking about how this seems as though it is a done deal. Um, from my understanding is that you're familiar with Kavanaugh and his work. Uh, what is your sense and how he will approach his seat as Supreme Court justice? Well, um, I've had the pleasure of appearing before him, uh, and uh, and I tend to hire a lot of his law clerks because they tend to be just about the best law clerks imaginable. Um, and I won't say a bad word about him. I mean, he's brilliant. Um, he is incredibly hardworking. Um, but I think it's fair to say that he is more conservative than Justice Kennedy. Um, that's not to say that he's not going to try and listen with an open mind, but he does come at things with a more conservative record, and you can see it in his 300 opinions um, than Justice Kennedy. And so I think it's fair to say this is moving the seat to the right. That's, after all, what Donald Trump promised. He promised in the campaign that he would appoint only pro-life judges who would overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, And, you know, Judge Kavanaugh didn't answer those specific questions. But I think it's fair to say that you're going to have a justice who is more conservative than Justice Kennedy. You know, I think, uh, Neil, it brings up an an important point. There's definitely a divide, and I think a lot of our listeners have probably read people talking about how uh, people who I'll call them elite lawyers who will talk about how, for example, uh, Judge Kavanaugh is a very intelligent guy. Um, and that, you know, this is the sort of person we should confirm that, that that Supreme Court nominations and votes on them should be based on how talented the lawyer is, whether they would be somebody who would listen and have an open mind versus their judicial ideology. Whereas there's others who see the stakes here for particular cases and, are, and think that votes should be based on, um, you know, the concern over a potential outcome of having a justice on the court. I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a hard question. And my answer to that is I think both are important. Obviously, character is really important and, um, you know, um, intelligence and hard work and ethics and honesty is important. But, you know, particularly when you have a seat like this, you know, in which you are taking a swing justice seat and replacing it with someone who is more conservative, I think it's important to understand the stakes. Um, I can see where different folks would come out on both sides. But I sure think the stakes are important for everyone to know. And I don't think we should pretend that this is just a routine judicial confirmation. This is the most significant confirmation um, in our lifetimes. And I'm delighted that the president nominated someone who's got honesty and integrity and all of those things. Um, At the same time, the consequences are dramatic. So one thing that you are known for, it's funny because you talked about arguing over 30 Supreme Court cases. That is what, frankly, you, you should be best known for because that is an extraordinary number of Supreme Court arguments. And you've really obviously yeah, argued some, some of the most important cases of our lifetime, uh, like the travel ban case. Uh, but um, one thing that you have been known for recently is is penning an op-ed supporting the nomination of just of now Justice Gorsuch, and I'm curious if you can you know explain whether you still agree you still have the, that view and explain how you approach that differently than than this uh, particular nomination. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was about 10 days into the president's new term. And um, look, I was happy he didn't nominate Judge Judy. That's what I thought he was going to do. But, uh, you know, he nominated a real judge, a real judge who I served on a committee with and seen firsthand. I mean, you know, I wasn't friends with him, which made it easier to do. Um, But I felt like um, this was a real judge. It was the beginning of the president's term. Um, and if one could get over Garland, and I was very express in my, you know, in my, and um, what I said about him, I said, look, if you're someone who can't get over the treatment of Judge Garland, which, you know, was horrific, but if you can't get over it, then, you know, this is op-ed's not for you. But if you are someone who's, who can, then Justice Gorsuch is, I think, a real judge and deserving of confirmation. Now, of course, it, just as we've been talking about, that was a very, very different nomination because you had the stakes were totally different. It was replaced Justice Scalia. And, you know, changing Justice Gorsuch uh, and Justice Scalia is not really a change in the composition of the court. This is. And again, I can see different people coming to different views on Judge Kavanaugh and whether or not, you know, as you, I think, nicely set up, you know, whether intelligence and, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, ethics and so on is enough or whether actually their point of view is the kind of central thing at a confirmation hearing. I can see different people coming to different sides of that. But here it is important to note that that point of view is actually going to be decisive in a large number of cases. And, and I suspect that's why many Republicans want to vote for him, too. They want that point of view. Well, one issue that you talked about earlier regarding the nomination process is, you know, how many questions are unanswered uh, by the nominee. And that is something frustrating to a lot of the people who are listening uh, to this podcast because they want to hear the nominee explain how they would rule in all sorts of cases. Uh, Can you explain to us how that rule or that practice, I shouldn't say rule because there's no rule, but how that practice of not answering questions about cases came about? Well, as I was saying before, you know, I do think it comes in part as a reaction to what happened in the Judge Bork hearings where he was, you know, uh, you know, and he deserves credit for this. He really did try and answer the questions. I think he took the view, look, I'm going to be the justice for the American people. They should know what they're getting. Um, Since that time, we've had, you know, I think a lot less answered, but but notably not as little answered as what we heard with Judge Kavanaugh, which, you know, outside of the special counsel regulations, which we'll talk about, I assume, later, he didn't really answer much. And he kept on referring to the Justice Ginsburg precedent that she didn't answer very many questions. But, you know, I went back and looked at those hearings, and, uh, you know, she sure answered a heck of a lot in her hearings. I mean, she affirmed Griswold, Roe, Eisenstadt, birth control case. She talked about Marbury being right, She, you know, she, which Justice Scalia notably didn't answer in his confirmation hearings. She condemned some cases, obviously Dred Scott versus Sanford, but also Korematsu. She said Lemon, the Lemon test on religion, she had no difficulty with. Um, you know, there was a whole bunch of stuff that she answered. And so I do think, unfortunately, that this hearing marked a kind of blow um, in the nominee's um, willingness to answer questions. Yeah. It, well, I think we are definitely approaching um, a an era where we're going to have nominees saying as little as possible. I mean, I, I will say that 
from my perspective, Neil, and I don't expect you to affirm this at all, I do think that there has been a practice over the years to groom people who deliberately do not have records. And I, you know, I, you know, we both have backgrounds. Certainly, we went to the same law school, and I think. You know, I have, you know, friends and and people I know who have deliberately tried to not uh, I call them. the I'll call them the blank slate club. who try to be as blank of a slate as possible. Judge Kavanaugh notably is not that he's somebody who has a record um, who has definitely um, made his views known, not only in his written opinions, but elsewhere. But I do think um, uh, being less transparent uh, is is helpful to nominees. And we may see more of that in the future. I couldn't agree more with you, Renato. I mean, it is heartening that Judge Kavanaugh hasn't lived his life, you know, out of the public spotlight, if you refuse to take positions and so on. So while the confirmation hearing itself didn't provide us with very much, you know, his life and his life's work, this is a guy who didn't shy from controversy, worked, for example, for Ken Starr um, and the like. I think that's really good and important. The last thing I think the Supreme Court needs is a bunch of people who look over their shoulder, afraid to, uh, you know, ever take a position on anything. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, this is, I think, a, you know, a, a real uh, welcome step. One one uh, case that he did express a view on, that Kavanaugh did express a view on, I thought was interesting, was United States versus Nixon, which is a case uh, in which. Um, a subpoena for records uh, was uh, uh, upheld. I think it was a grand jury subpoena for records. Uh, the The Supreme Court said the president had to respond to. Obviously, may have some relevance uh, in the near future. But he refused, for example, to express his views on Roe versus Wade. Uh, is there any principled reason why you why a nominee would ex- would express their views on one and not the other? Well, you know, I, I do find I did find it kind of odd because, you know, after all, you do have the president promising that he was going to nominate a certain type of justice who would overturn those decisions. And so it seems to me, you know, um, unless he dispelled it, that's pretty much, you know, what we should take from the the view. And, you know, the fact that he calls Roe settled precedent, I think, as the week's events demonstrate, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't mean very much because, after all, you know, the Supreme Court often overrules its own um, precedents. But I do think there's something else really uh, notable, and your question really tees it up, which is just the extraordinary circumstance of this nomination happening at this moment in time. I mean, Judge Kavanaugh was asked about all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't really expect to come up in a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, like, can a president pardon himself? Can he be subpoenaed? Can he be indicted? And the like. Um, But, you know, there is something very anomalous about having the president, this president, name someone to the Supreme Court when, after all, they are the guardians of the rule of law. And when the president acts like rule of law is an acronym, that means something like life after weekend, not our most hallowed concepts. Um, And if you think about, you know, the who's on the Trump team and all the people who've been indicted from his personal lawyer, who's now fingering him in a criminal uh, you know, enterprise and the president's national security advisor pleading guilty and the like. There's something very strange about this nomination at this moment in time.
Well, that's for sure, and and I think that brings us really to a, a law review article that uh, that Mr. Kavanaugh or Judge Kavanaugh uh, penned, talking about his views regarding whether the president uh, should be, for example, investigated while in office, and so on. And now, to be clear, he was talking about. Um, at that point, I think a potential legislative solution, in other words, a, a law that Congress could pass on this, not necessarily what the Supreme Court should do. But he was very clear that his role in the Bush White House um, brought him to conclude that the president is really too busy and doing too many important things to be burdened with criminal investigations and and uh, and the like, and that that sh- should not be um something that the president is burdened with. And I, I think I think it's very reasonable for somebody to conclude that 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 view and that inclination might uh, might affect his ruling in a case uh, that uh, might come up under, you know, on in the next uh, year or so under under uh, the, you know, as, a, as part of the Mueller investigation. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I don't fault Judge Kavanaugh for this, but I entirely do I am suspicious of President Trump. I mean, we're talking about a president who has no fear corrupting the most hallowed parts of our Justice Department, you know, even those tweets last week, you know, saying effectively that Republican congressmen shouldn't be indicted because it'll swing the House elections in November one way or another. And if you're someone, if you're the type of man who would say that about our Justice Department and about our attorney general, what makes you think he wouldn't do all sorts of stuff to try and lean on Judge Kavanaugh um, in the nomination process? Again, I don't think Judge Kavanaugh would in any way listen to this or stand up for it. But, you know, he does have a record, and I'm sure he was picked in part for being someone who believes so much in presidential power and the inability to, you know, indict or subpoena or president or so on. You know, he, of the 25 names on that list, does stand at the apex of someone who has a written record on those things. Again, I don't think it means Judge Kavanaugh would do anything untoward, but it's not at all uh, out of the realm of possibility to think Donald Trump picked him because he had those pre-existing views, now views that I'm sure Judge Kavanaugh would approach and apply to a Democratic president, too. But right now, you know, it's a Republican president, Donald Trump, who's facing exactly these types of things that we heard about in the hearing. One question that I've gotten from listeners is whether or not there is any um there is any method by which Judge Kavanaugh will be required to recuse himself from cases involving the exercise of presidential power, for example. Can you just I, I know I think I have a very good sense of the answer here, but I'd be curious as your take on as to uh, recusal of a Supreme Court justice. Well, the recusal standards of the Supreme Court are very different than for every other court in the land. And for one good reason, which is you can't replace them. They're not fungible. So on the courts of appeals, where I tend to argue some cases, if one judge is recused, you just swap out and replace them with another judge. And indeed, if a lot of judges on the circuit happen to be recused, you could even borrow from district courts or other circuits, but not at the Supreme Court. Um, If a justice is out, that means there's eight justices or seven or however many are out. And so for that reason, you want to have a rule against recusal wherever, wherever possible. And look, the fact that Judge Kavanaugh has written some prior things doesn't in any way 
full, you know, merit or recusal. Now, obviously, if, you know, something untoward happened in the process, in the confirmation process, you know, and, you know, it may still happen yet that Donald Trump says something to to Judge Kavanaugh or something, you know, that, of course, could trigger recusal. But so far, based on what I've seen, I see zero evidence for a recusal. Now, what about um, the issue of records? Uh, you know, one thing that uh, that Democrats have have made a a point in this hearing is how they haven't received uh, all of uh, Judge Kavanaugh's records from his time in the Bush White House. That they still have time to that they don't ha- they haven't had sufficient time to review records and so forth. Uh, what what are your views regarding uh, that in this uh, particular nomination? Yeah, I thought this was extraordinary to rush the hearing in this way. Um, and to dump 42,000 pages uh, at 9 p.m. the day before the hearing and to withhold 100,000 pages, still 100,000 pages, have been withheld because of executive privilege. And, you know, and I feel bad for everyone in the country, but I also feel bad for Judge Kavanaugh because, you know, I don't think this is a good process. Um, and the documents are eventually going to come out. And, you know, I just think it could really be a messy thing down the road. And that's why Senator McConnell had warned President Trump not to nominate Judge Kavanaugh if he wanted to have a rushed hearing. And they went ahead and did it anyway. And I do think it's uh, it's un- it's really unfortunate. Um, and it looks like, you know, maybe there's nothing really there in the documents, but it sure looks like something's there and there's a kind of messy cover-up. And that's particularly so because, you know, Chuck Grassley, you know, who's the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee chair, had insisted for Justice Kagan in her hearings that the hearings couldn't take place until all the documents were in from the White House. And, you know, I had a bird's eye view of that. I was her deputy, and I saw that. And every White House document really was turned over. And Senator Cornyn and others, you know, raised a big stink and said, we can't have a hearing for Kagan until we get all the documents. They got all the documents, and now they've broken the rules and had a different standard. And the question that has to be asked is why. Why the rush? Why do it this way? You know, this is not just a Supreme Court nomination, but it's the most significant Supreme Court nomination. And to rush it in this way is, I think, deeply unfortunate. Well, I've got one last question for you, Neil. Um, one, our listeners have asked uh, about um, the, you know, the accusations that have been made by Feinstein, Leahy, and others about dishonesty or alleged dishonesty on the part of Judge Kavanaugh or lack of candor um, with the uh, senators. What is your what is your view on that? Do do you think he was uh, n- knowingly dishonest based on what you saw? What what consequence, if any, do you think should come of that? So I haven't delved into all of these records and so on, but I did watch the hearings and I didn't hear anything to me that suggested any dishonesty um, or evasion on the part of Judge Kavanaugh. Now, I might have missed it, you know, but it sure didn't seem fair to me. Um, And before, you know, I I do think that this is a kind of not a uh, it's a really unfortunate thing to have these kinds of accusations lobbed. And, you know, if they're accurate, you know, let's hear the evidence and really, you know, show us the smoking guns which say so. If not, and your opposition to Judge Kavanaugh is rooted in, you know, abortion or environmental or, you know, point of view things, great. You know, I think that's the debate we should be having and not a debate about character assassination unless you've really got the documents. And as I say, 
maybe that document exists. I haven't seen it yet. Um, and until I see it, I'd really rather not have these types of things kind of corrupt the public discourse. Yeah, I will say, Neil, that uh, I discussed that that this issue a little earlier on the podcast, but I will say particularly as to there's this issue of like baseball tickets and debt, you know, people were making something out of that. I just, to me, that's really insignificant compared to the more uh, important issues like reproductive rights or gun regulation or other things that would be potentially impacted by uh, the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. I, I would rather that I would rather us focus on those issues instead. Hundred percent agree. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Neil. It was a real pleasure. Thank uh, you. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. Real privilege. So, Renato, as we said at the beginning, this seems like a done deal. Kavanaugh is going to be on the Supreme Court. What other things do you see happening? Uh, what can you tell us about what we should look for in the news in the next couple of weeks? Well, I think we're going to see the addition to the confirmation of uh, Justice Kavanaugh, soon to be Justice Kavanaugh. I think we're going to see continued ire against uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. We're going to see a continued search for the— uh, And that's from uh, Trump, not from—the ire is from the president, which is bizarre. It is bizarre, and I, th- and I, I think he, he will be fired shortly after the midterms. What? <laughs> okay. And then I think we're also going to continue to see a search for the uh, anonymous um, uh, author of the op-ed. Uh, you can check out my own op-eds this week about that subject. Um, and then um, there will continue to be uh, leaks. Uh, Omarosa uh, is going to have uh, some. Got about Omarosa. She's got tapes. some tapes coming out uh, in the Whoa. days to come. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 